Let's go ahead and go back into the Scriptures to Matthew chapter 9 as we pick up where we've been going through the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew 9, verses uh, 14. The, the passage, the text is through 17, but we will we'll break this up this morning and this evening, and we'll be looking at verses 14 and 15 this morning, and then pick up and do 16, 17 this evening. Um, before we get... To the text, I, I want just to perhaps give you a little bit of a an understanding of the providence of God. Okay, so a couple, I guess it was last week, driving down the road, um, heading home from work, uh, maybe the day or two before, we'd had uh, new tires put on the back. Um, by the generosity of someone. And then one of those tires got slashed, not by anyone purposefully. And you think, why, God? You know, what, what what's the reason? Well, you didn't really think much about it. So I'm driving down the road in my truck with the perfect clean windshield. And then all of a sudden, ding, rock, cracked windshield. <laughs> and you're, and your, first, your first reaction is, why? And I thought, that's not how I'm supposed to react. And I said, thanks, God. <laughs> and I, I said, I don't know why, but thank you. Um, still don't know why. Still working on to find that out. Uh, but there's always an opportunity to act in unbelief. Right? And typically, that looks like sin. I got pretty upset at Shepherd this morning. <laughs> but I love you, dude. Uh, because he was playing with my guitar stuff. So I didn't have my guitar stuff this morning. Did the Lord provided a piano player. <laughs> Sorry. Amen. His ways are higher than ours, but we can't succumb to falling short because we don't understand. So we can't lash out. We can't act out in unbelief. But we follow Christ and we trust the Lord. So. Okay. Let's take a second to pray. I know we all have our moments of unbelief, and so let me give you all a second to do that and also for me to collect myself. Let's pray. Amen. Okay, 
Let me read verses 14 through 17 for us, and, and then we'll, we'll uh, put our focus on those first two verses. Then the disciple of John came to him, that would be Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilt, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Uh, one, one more prayer. For, uh, Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Help us to see Christ, that we might find joy in him. Amen. Amen. So, um, I, don't, I don't know if many of you have heard or followed uh, in contemporary life and what do you call it, uh, pop culture, I guess, really, the last week or two, maybe. Maybe it's just been this week. The, there's this, um, a, a song came out um, from some guy in the middle of uh, the Appalachian Mountains. And it really sparked a lot of people in good and bad. And it was a song of... Um, it was a protest song. Uh, we don't have many of those these days, but I say uh, we, most of us know what a protest song is. Um, and it, it's been a song that has touched millions of average Americans, people who are fed up with this or that or this part of the government or this or that or the way things are going at work. And it can you can re, I, I don't know if you don't know the song, you don't have to. But just understand that it touches on the struggles of average America, okay? And as you listen to that song, you get depressed because it's a very hopeless song. It's calling out the problems that we face day in and day out, like, you know, having to buy new tires or new windshields or... Uh, bank accounts being low, things like that. Things we deal with every day. And you listen and it's you're just like, "Yes, I feel that. I I understand it and it that's the pain, that's the struggle that I have." And you kind of and I got caught up in it and and understand it. I, I I wouldn't recommend the song to families and kids. It's definitely not um there's some there's some language in it that's not appropriate. Uh, not one we sit around play at the house. It just kind of came across our our feed, so to say. But as I've been dwelling on it for the last however many days, I got to thinking, as bad as the world is and as tough as life is, we shouldn't be moaning and complaining. It's okay to think about our struggles and even share them with one another. But when we hear basically the blues 
we understand that we can only enjoy the blues in so much as that they're fun to listen to. Because those types of songs, that type of music, does not summarize our future. Right? It does not summarize our future. And I, I hadn't made any connections with the, the text until this weekend uh, regarding that thought, uh, that frame of thought with that song. And so I think it, it's helpful as we go into this passage, especially these first two verses, considering what is our frame of mind in regards of how we are overtaken by our emotions, how we are dictated by the things in the world around us, and ultimately the presence of Christ in our lives as Christians ought to overshadow and overcome every thing that we can find sorrowful and mournful. Okay, and that's what I want you to get out of this passage. Uh, I normally don't share the titles of the sermons. I put them in the bulletin. But this morning I want us to ask the question, are we to feast or to fast? Are we to feast or to fast? And you'll, you'll understand as we, as we walk through it. So let's just jump right in. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we... And the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. So the very first word in verse 14 helps us to understand that what we talked about last week is very well connected to what we're talking about this week. Jesus and his disciples are still at Matthew's house, the tax collector. Remember, Jesus had called Matthew to follow him, to be a disciple. Uh, Matthew obeyed and followed him. Not only did he obey him, but he invited, to, invited him to his house and brought his tax collecting and sending friends with him because Matthew wanted them to see and know Christ as he did. But we also understood that this not only was Jesus and Matthew, the disciples and Matthew's friends there, but for some reason the Pharisees had, a, had an angle in what was going on. Whether or not they were a part of the dinner or hanging, I don't know. Um, but we also come to find out that the, the disciples of John the Baptist were at Matthew's house, or at least peering in, don't really know um, exactly what the social aspect of it was. We at least know that Jesus was reclining and eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees were at least looking in upon it, as well as John's disciples. Now, he, they ask a question about fasting. Uh, now, remember, Jesus is eating at this time. He's eating, and his disciples are eating. So the, the disciples of John come and ask him, We, the disciples of John, fast. The Pharisees, they fast. What's up with you guys? Y'all look like you're enjoying yourself and feasting pretty good. Um, so one thing we've got to understand is some context of the fasting practices of these three groups of people. Well, these two groups of people in Jesus. So you've got the Pharisees, John the, Bap John the Baptist's disciples, and Jesus. So the Pharisees, their practice in fasting was ritual. It was on schedule. All right. 
Uh, we, we realize and find out in later conversations Jesus has with other Pharisees. Uh, and it's pretty well acknowledged that the Pharisees, their schedule was about two, at least twice a week. They were scheduled to fast. But the problem was is that schedule was not connected to anything internal. It was just beep, beep, beep. Today's the day to fast. Go fast. It was ritualistic, but without the heart. Reminds you a lot about what we looked at last week when Jesus went and told the Pharisees after they said, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And he said, hey, go check out Hosea 6.6. I think you missed something. I desire steadfast love and knowledge, not uh, sacrifices and burnt offerings. So that was the Pharisees' habit. But you also have to, if you go and scour the Old Testament, I think I, I think this is right. I could not find, I, someone can let me know if I'm wrong. The only time God prescribes for Israel to fast was one time a year. That God actually, in giving his law to Israel, told Israel to fast one time of year, and that was on the Day of Atonement, or, or Yom Kippur. Right, that the time that uh, the high priest would go into the holy of holies and make atonement by the blood of bulls and goats for the sake of Israel, there would be a day of fasting or uh, self-affliction. I think is what some translations call it. So they've gone from that to many days of fasting uh, to being regularly regularly scheduled throughout the week. And as we said, Jesus had already rebuked their hypocrisy on how they fast. In Matthew 6, he'd mentioned that they not only fast on schedule, but they fast in a way that they let everyone know that they're fasting, right? So they not only do they have an alarm to when they do it, they make sure everybody knows that their alarm's going off, that today's fasting day. They did it by making sure that, oh, I'm so tired, I'm so hungry, I've been fasting. You know, they're showing themselves to be righteous, yet in, empty inside of any actual heart of worship. So we keep that all in mind in this conversation. And also this evening when we look at uh, these two uh, parables, or so to say, at the end of this section. So that's the Pharisees. Then there's John's disciples. So the Pharisees come at Jesus with their questioning in uh, probably hatred. I can't, there's another word out there, but they, they were wanting to catch Jesus and make him look bad. It's probably it's probably so that John's disciples are actually curious why Jesus' practice and his disciples are different from theirs. Because who are they following? Someone who is true and genuine, John the Baptist. Um, but where did their where did their fasting practices come from? Flip over a page or two to Matthew eight or Matthew eleven verse eighteen, and there's a few passages we'll 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 hint at. Here in the beginning to understand a few things. So if you look at Matthew 11, 18, we understand why John's disciples would fast. John, uh, Matthew 11, verse 18. For John, that would be John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking. Okay, so they followed their teacher. John, John was one who fasted. So they followed the, 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 their teacher and they fasted. Now, why did John fast? Well, you've got to think about him as a prophet. 
as an Old Testament prophet. This was, this was the role that he was fulfilling. You remember, and when he did eat, what did he eat? Locust and honey. He was definitely not one who was feasting. Uh, John's message was a message of repentance of sin. Now, you can connect that to Yom Kippur, to the Day of Atonement, right? The Day of Atonement was for the forgiveness of sin. John comes preaching a message of repentance of sin, so very well much connected, uh, the covering of sin. And so fasting is easily see connected here for the sake of John and those who would follow him. You could say his practice aligned with his message, that being John the Baptist. And then there's Jesus. So they say, Jesus, why don't you fast? Well, they apparently had never read Matthew 4, had they? Because he fasted for 40 days, right? And so fasting was not outlawed or seen as wrong by Jesus. They just were wondering, like the Pharisees, they, they, they realized that there was something about this Jesus, right? The Pharisees saw themselves as great teachers and rabbis, and so they, they pretty much said, okay, Jesus is somewhere on that vein too, and so they, they pushed him, why are you not more like us? Well, so John's disciples are saying, okay, you're, you're like John somehow. I don't know everything about who you are or what you're doing. Why are you not acting like John? Well, when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and he wasn't eating, he was actually eating. What was he eating? The Word of God, Right? He was eating the Word of God. That's just an extra. Every man, a man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So think about that next time you are like Esau and will do anything to eat. Uh, Jesus, from this passage and others, we realize that Jesus was passing down... Um, was not passing down the practice of fasting in a real, real uh, ritualistic way. But Jesus saw fasting as a necessary aspect of his relationship with God, but not a necessary aspect of his ministry, because his ministry was different from John's. He and his disciples were known for putting down the food. Go back to Matthew 11, verse 19. In contrast to John the Baptist, Jesus says the Son of Man, who we've already established as Christ, came eating and drinking. He was not ashamed of feasting in the presence of one, his disciples, and two, as we learned last week, even sinners. John's disciples in all of this are analyzing these three groups and saying one of these groups is not like the other. They're noticing that Jesus and his disciples are greatly different. And what does Jesus say to them in response? Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then they will fast. So a couple things jump out to us real quick in that verse 15. Jesus connects fasting with mourning. Look at the verse and look at it and analyze it carefully. 
Jesus said to them, verse 15, Can the wedding guest mourn? What, what, what has been brought into question? Fasting. Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will mourn fast. See what, see what he's doing there? It's the old switcheroo. He's saying, when I'm here, they don't fast because they don't mourn. When I'm gone, they will mourn, and then therefore they can fast. So he connects instantly mourning and fasting. Now, um, so but, uh, Here, I want to make a preface this. The goal of today, this morning, is not... Um, is not necessarily an examination on fasting. We'll come to that. Uh, There's a bigger picture here that Jesus is trying to make than just trying to understand fasting per se. But we do know this, as you look throughout Scripture, that fasting is connected to struggle, to suffering, and as we've already mentioned, to sin. And in all those three things, struggling, suffering, sin, you'll find mourning sorrowfulness all right so that's the first thing we notice the second thing we notice jesus says that now is not the time this is not a season for my disciples to be mourning now how does he do this how does he communicate this well he speaks in terms that his audience should understand remember last week well, if you weren't, if, actually, we talked about this Sunday night because we looked at this this portion uh, last Sunday evening. When Jesus recommends that the Pharisees need to go and learn Hosea six six, he is bringing up the topic of Hosea, the, the the book of Hosea. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of Hosea, the bottom line is is Israel is an adulterous, unfaithful bride to God. That's sort of the main press but not just that but that god will then overlook the unfaithfulness of israel keep his promise and send forth the messiah okay that is the end purpose of hosea but the topic of marriage and unfaithfulness uh, a bride and a bridegroom should be flashing in both of these groups, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, in their minds when he says, number one, go check out Hosea, but then he uses the language in verse 15, the bridegroom is where? Is here. So not only is he giving them an, uh, an instruction on fasting and, and, uh, and, other, and other things, but he's also declaring something that we might not realize. He's saying, I am the Messiah. Because he's saying, I am the bridegroom. Okay? So he's definitely using language they get. Um, He's pointing to his messianic office. He's pointing to the fact that they should be looking for him. They should be wanting to follow him. But the other familiar language that he uses is directly towards John disciples, probably not for the Pharisees. So hold your spot in Matthew 9. Turn to John 3, and I want to read to you why Jesus probably uses this language of bridegroom as well for, the, for the, uh, John's disciples. Remember, John's disciples are following John. 
to imitate John. And so they're going to listen to John's teachings and his, and his proclamation of the word. John 3, verse 28. Let's just start at 25. So, you know, the Pharisees might actually pick on, up on this too because they might have heard John say this a time or two. Verse 25 of John 3. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, we're talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. Okay, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the await, the one that you're awaiting. He goes, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the voice of the bridegroom's voice. So you're like, okay, what does he mean? What is he talking about? Who's rejoicing? Who's hearing the bridegroom? Well, John then says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Meaning what? The guy you're talking about is here. The bridegroom. Whom I baptized, Jesus of Nazareth. This is who the scriptures have pointed at. And now that I see him and I hear him, the bridegroom, I have joy. I have joy. This joy of mine is now complete. And then his wonderful phrase, he must increase, but I must decrease. So... They've heard John, the disciples of John, have probably heard John call Jesus the bridegroom. So they're going to understand the language that Jesus is attempting to portray here to them. The joy that John was anticipating is now here. Because I'm here, Jesus says. The Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. Now, let me, as you go back to Matthew... Let me read something to you. Go back to Matthew 9. Who else shows joy when they see of the fulfillment of the bridegroom, the Messiah, the chosen, the anointed one? Well, hear hear the response of uh, Philip and Nathanael as they realize that Jesus of Nazareth is the bridegroom of Israel. Listen. Listen to their joy. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, Hey, we found the the, the guy. That's not what he said. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Imagine, he, he, he calls on the name of Moses. They've been waiting since Moses wrote down the words of the law. And there's no mourning going on in Philip. He's full of joy. And he's got to tell Nathaniel. Nathaniel said to him, skeptical, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see for yourself. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Listen to Nathanael. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God! Exclamation point. You are the King of Israel! Exclamation point. So here's what I want you to understand. To, to have the revelation that Jesus is the Christ brings joy. You've got to get that in your head for this passage. There's no other response. When you see Jesus as He is, when He calls you in the, that effective power of His call and He reveals Himself to you, there is, no, there is nothing in you except joy. Now, back to Matthew. So ultimately, if you find out that the bridegroom is at hand, it's time to celebrate. It's time to eat. It's time to have a fest, feast. That's why me and Dan are so joyful all the time. The third thing we see that's obvious that comes forth to us in this is that a season of mourning will come upon them. A season of mourning will come upon them. He says, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. Now we have to start asking questions. Why? Now, let's play the word game again, the, the switcheroo. Fast when they mourn. Don't fast when they're joyful. What does Jesus say to the disciples in the upper room? The last night he's with them. He says, and we'll go look at this passage in a minute. This is what he says to them as he's about to be taken away from them. What does he say here in 15? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Okay? So the night he is taken away from them, this is what he tells them. You will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. Okay? He's, he's preparing them for him to be taken away. At that point, he's going to be snatched out of their presence. And there can be nothing more sorrowful than being separated from Jesus Christ. Okay? Peter, Peter realized this. He did not want to be separated from Christ in the physical sense. Because at one point, after uh, Jesus says, I'm going to go, I'm going to be taken away, I'm going to be killed. And Peter insists that he will follow Jesus where anywhere, even to his death. Where you are, Jesus, i got to be, even if it kills me. Now we know how that Unfolded, But the reality is, is that Peter understood where you are, I want to be. You have the words of eternal life. From who, for whom else are we to go to? So we ask the question. So, well, let me make sure we understood the beginning of the season of mourning. It's when he's taken away. And ultimately, in his death. He's no longer in the physical presence of his disciples. And of course, 
there's mourning that comes after that. But then we've got to ask the question, does the mourning end? Does the season of mourning end? And if it does, when does it? Now, the obvious answer that the season of mourning will end when the bridegroom is back in their presence, right? If you use the logic of 14 and 15, the bridegroom's here, no fasting, no mourning. When the bridegroom's not here, there's mourning and fasting. So they're going to stop a season of mourning when the bridegroom comes back. We can all agree on that premise. But the big question is, and if you go and read the, the commentators and listen to the preachers, they're all going to have a little bit of a different take on this. What time does that season end? Because there's really two main options. When will the bridegroom return and the season of mourning end? The first option would be at his resurrection ascension. That there would be the time that mourning shall cease. Or his final return. Now, you might be picking a team in your head. And you're, it's, it, you're probably pretty good to be on either side. But here's, I want to explain it a little bit so everybody has an option or has an understanding of the options. So, does the season of mourning end when the bridegroom returns, when Jesus returns in his resurrection? Right? Because, think about it. In their presence, arrested, betrayed, killed, buried, out of their presence. And then what happens after that? He's raised from the dead. And where does he go? Back into the presence of his disciples and, and many others. Um, we read, or I didn't, I, I hinted at John 16. We actually read it earlier. Here, if you wanted a verse for this option, here's what it would be. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, as he speaks to the disciples on that final night, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Team resurrection is looking pretty good right now. He also says, um, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Mourning during sorrow, during childbirth, we understand that. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you, speaking to the disciples... Have sorrow now, as they will lose the presence of the bridegroom, but I will see you again, and your hearts will, you guessed it, rejoice. And no one will take away your joy from you. Alright. And even after that, do you know what Jesus does when he comes back from the resurrection? He feasts with them. He eats with the disciples after the road to Emmaus, and he also eats on the seashore with the disciples as they have some roasted fish. Uh, but doesn't he leave again, though? Doesn't he leave again? Doesn't he leave their presence again? It's still in John 17 or John 16. He says, "But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going." But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He will ascend, 
and he will be out of their presence again. Um, But let me finish that passage. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now we know who the helper is, right? The Holy Spirit. Now, okay, the bridegroom's gone, but the Spirit is here. Is that really the same thing? Can that be the same thing? Well, let me show you a little something in Romans 8. I want you to look at this. Go to Romans 8 with me. So if Jesus' presence goes, but the Spirit comes, is the bridegroom gone? Are you out of the presence of the bridegroom? Romans 8, verse 9. Instead of giving commentary, I'm just going to give great emphasis to certain words here. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to you. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Do you see what Paul did there? He said, he he spoke of one person in three different ways. The Holy Spirit, or excuse me, the Spirit of God, and then he uses another name for that same Spirit, the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. And then he says in verse 10, But if Christ is in you, do you see that? I see some strange faces. The Spirit of God is in you, then the Spirit of Christ is in you. The Spirit of Christ is in you, Christ is in you. Where is the bridegroom? He dwells in you. Even though his physical presence is gone, he is spiritually dwelling with his disciples. So, That's option number one. Took too long for that one. Option two. Go a little bit faster. At his final return. When he physically returns. Right? After Jesus' ascension, number one. Okay. Let's be real. If you take point number one, you say, well, then no one can fast anymore. Right? Because if the presence of the bridegroom is with you, then we're not. Jesus says, don't fast. But in Acts, what does the church do multiple times? They fast. Right? Acts 13, Acts 14, that's a good place for you to go check out. Now, it's not a major topic in... Actually, here's one for you. After Acts, the word fast does not come up again in the New Testament. Okay? Unless I missed it, it does not come up again after Acts. So, um, it's a theme... But it's definitely not a major topic. Uh, so first we know that Jesus ascends um, and we're waiting for him to return. Number two, we know the physical presence of Christ is better than the spiritual presence of Christ, right? If the spiritual presence of Christ is good, the physical presence of the bridegroom is even better. Paul says what? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. He also says when we see his face... When we see Him face to face is when His glory will be fully revealed. He says it like this. Pay pay attention to this statement. 
for now, now, while we have spiritual Christ, but not physical Christ, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And then you get to the end of the new, or you you get to the end, and you see the new heavens and new earth. And what does not exist in the new heavens and the new earth? A sun, a moon. Why? Because of the presence of the bridegroom is so bright, so glorious. There is no light that is needed outside of His revealing glory. We understand that there is more to come. Faith will be turned to sight. So. For those on team at the, at the at his return, we are like John the Baptist in some sense can mourn the more. What do I mean by that? We want to know more of Jesus. We want to be less sinful. We want to see the greater glory of God. We anticipate in the greater revealing of Jesus. And we also know that Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. So which one is it? Should we be mourning and fasting? Because we're waiting on the physical return of Christ? Or should we be feasting and enjoy because we have Christ? He is with us now. When you have the presence of Christ by the Spirit of God, or when you see Him face to face, which is it? And I think, drumroll, it's both. (laughs) You knew it was coming, right? It's both. There's a biblical phrase you might be familiar with. It's called, already, not yet. Already, not yet. Not yet. You are saved, but what are you being saved? You have joy, but there is more joy to come. You know God, but there is more to know about Him. You have Christ, but there is more to have of Him. Already, but not fully yet. So what does this mean for us? And we're, we're, we're finishing. Three things that this means for us. Number one, we feast. Number one, we feast. We feast, and when we think of feasting, we think of celebrating because we have been given the joy of Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches his disciples that they have his joy. We have his joy even when the world hates us. We have his joy even when we suffer from sin internally And externally, we have his joy. Paul suggests, because Paul says that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In darkness, in despair, in times of want, in times of suffering, and even sin, we can be lifted out of our sorrow in mourning because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have Christ. We have joy. We have a reason to celebrate, to feast. What did the prodigal son receive when he came home? A banquet. 
they killed the fatted calf. They feasted when the lost son came home. It was a gospel celebration. And church, we must rejoice. Beloved of God, chosen, washed, and forgiven. For Christ the crucified is yours. He is with us. You are covered by his blood, acquitted of all sin and guilt. And so we, Christians, church, we sing for joy. By faith, we are counted righteous. By faith, we have received the righteousness of Christ. We have a seat at the table as a son and daughter, as a member of the family of God. We feast because we have Christ. What's the second thing? We fast. Three reasons why we fast. Number one, because sin still remains. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The fight against evil, internal and external, is a reminder of the not yet. Right? It's a reminder of the not yet. Our own sins remind us that we are not fully complete or, as the writer of Hebrews says, perfected. It is coming. The world around us reminds us that this world is cursed. The first reason we fast is because we still because sin still remains. The second reason we fast is because suffering remains. There is physical sickness and disease that is unexplainable. There is cancer that is incurable. And so we fast, we mourn. Fires and hurricanes destroy homes and families and take lives, and so we mourn and fast. And hatred towards Christians and his church continue, as they do in Iran and our brother Yusuf. And so we mourn and fast. And therefore we long, and that's why we mourn. We long for more glory. We long for more of Christ. We mourn our sin. We are sorrowful in our suffering. But the third thing, we feast, we fast. The third thing, we feast more than we fast. We feast more than we fast. Romans 6 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where the serpent bruises his heel on the the seed of Eve, Christ crushes the head of the devil. We feast more than we fast. In times of sorrow, we know two things. Number one, we have Him. We have Him. We are His and He is ours. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. So when everything else says mourn, we can find joy in knowing we have Him. In Him, there is no condemnation now. And number two, not only do we have Him, but we have Him eternally. Eternally do we have Christ. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he says it this way, 
So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, the thing that might bring you to mourning and fasting, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, as we look not to the things that are seen, if you keep your focus on the things that are seen, you will mourn and mourn and mourn and mourn and mourn. And you will have no joy. And so we do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen or the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. They're here and gone. But the things that are unseen, Jesus Christ our Lord, is eternal. And so we feast more than we fast. But how should we feast together? We should feast together. We do it formally and informally. Every first Sunday of the month, we come to a table to feast. To not just feast, but to take part of the body and the blood of Christ. To remember and proclaim his death, to come together as his body, sealed in the new covenant by his blood. And we're commanded to come and eat at his table. And we come to celebrate at the last Sunday of every month. As we do not have a formal meal, but we have an informal meal. We don't do it because we like food. We do it because we celebrate who our Lord is. We should come together anytime we pick up bread or food and remember and celebrate the joy we have in being the bride of Christ. The early church in Acts, day by day, continued with one mind, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. We do this, we celebrate and feast together because we anticipate the final feast in the presence of the Lamb. We will all be around the table singing holy, holy, holy at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And blessed are those, Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to that final supper, that final feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as we leave... That's once a month, twice a month. But you have an opportunity to feast three times a day, seven days a week. I want to commend you. We're being corrected at our house for this. To eat at the table. Whether you're a family of eight or two. Take time to feast together. If it's mac and cheese, let it be a feast to the glory of God that you have the bridegroom and you can be joyful with mac and cheese. Bring out the good china for the mac and cheese for the glory of God. Feast at home together. Sing a hymn before you eat. Give, great, give thanks to the Lord for His provision. Celebrate 
when you break bread at home. Exalt the gospel in Christ as you eat meals together. Come to Christ and take a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, What love is this that you allow sinners to the table? Weak-minded, unbelieving sinners as ourselves. But we give thanks for your call to us. A call that pierces and divides. A call that initiates a heart of flesh and removes the heart of stone. Father, we're thankful for the rebuke and reprimand that you give us in your discipline towards us as sons and daughters. And so search our hearts, search our our rituals, and help us to see where we have sought to offer sacrifice but have not steadfast love or knowledge of you. Stir up in our hearts the affections of Christ. Build up stronger the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our minds. So that by knowledge and love we will walk forth and do that which you have called us to do in worship. With a true heart. With clean hands. For Christ's sake. Amen. Let's sing one more hymn. Let's stand with the black hymnal. We're going to revert to the original since the Lord's blessed us with a piano player. Number 380, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Number 380, let's stand and sing.
people said, Amen. Uh, just a few things real quick. Let me ask Miss Nikki a question. Uh, on the back of the bulletin is the, the rest of the month's calendar. Next Friday, guys, we're having a movie and pizza for the kiddos at 5.30. So that's next Friday at 5.30. We'll eat, and then uh, we'll we'll watch something for the kiddos. And then our fellowship there that Sunday. Uh, the church is providing the meat, and if you – the theme's barbecue. The church is providing the meat, and if you guys would bring some sides, that would be wonderful. And we – and, and also for the, the, the gifts for the Maxims with the new baby coming as well. Um, we'll practice our first feast and celebration. Yippee! Yeah! <laughs> exactly. Um, this evening we'll come back together at 6. Uh, we will not be finishing Psalm 6, but we'll be finishing this text this evening at 6 uh, p.m. Uh, men, no meeting this week. We'll start meeting back up in September. I'll have that, that. It'll be that first Thursday in September, men, when we'll begin to meet again together. Um, and with that, let me read to you not only the benediction, but a charge for us as we uh, leave today. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And here's the charge. Worship God. Praise God from Thank you.